This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. She has a world of ready wealth, our minds and hearts to bless. Spontaneous wisdom breathed by health, truth breathed by cheerfulness. One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good than all the sages can. Sweet is the law which nature brings, our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things we murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art, close up those barren leaves, come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. One of the objects of putting a policeman in uniform is the prevention of crime. For although much of his duty on a one-man beat is very hard work, which is often dull, by his mere presence and by keeping alert, he will deter many would-be wrongdoers. The 19th century was a period of great transformation. Urbanisation, industrialisation, technologicalization were all, at heart, a change in the routines of humans. Modernity, at its simplest, was about efficiency, speed, production, of the maximising of health, wealth and profit. It was about scientifically searching for those rules, those methods, those laws that would bring about the ideal human order. Whatever the trouble is, people know that the policeman will deal with the situation efficiently and without fuss. So they turn automatically to the police for help and advice is readily sought from them on a great variety of personal problems. Even on the correct way in which an old age pension form should be completed. Nothing is too trivial. Nothing is too serious for his attention. And he thereby becomes a good friend of the people. They have learned to trust and respect him. The English philosopher Jeremy Bentham had argued that society should be organised to provide the greatest good for the greatest number. He wrote, for example, that the unpredictability of judge-made law, the freedom of judges across the country to be flexible, to make their own decisions, made it impossible for any individual to know how to act. Bentham wanted a codified set of rules, practices and laws, rationally planned and calculated, to produce that greatest happiness. For Bentham, freedom could be calculated. In 1800, a disciple of Bentham, Patrick Colquhoun, influentially argued that Bentham's utilitarian principles should be applied to policing. That a criminal justice system should not just punish crime, but also prevent it. And Colquhoun went further. 
If it was about rationally planning a society to prevent poor behaviour and encouraging good, this principle should be applied, in his own words, to markets, hackney coach stands, paving, cleansing, lighting, watching, marking streets and numbering houses. Efficiency could be planned and enacted. In Parliament, the Home Secretary and soon-to-be Prime Minister Robert Peel was also arguing for a new police force. In 1826, he told Parliament that I consider the crime of theft to constitute the most important class of crime. Looking at the committals and convictions for crime, it will at once be seen that those for theft so far exceed the committals and convictions for any other species of offence, that there can be no question of its paramount importance in the catalogue of offences against society. While aristocratic figures like Peel, Coquin and Bentham sought to stamp out crime, the reality was that it was either already declining or that spikes in crime reported in the news were often a sensationalist myth. Despite the fear of the shadowed criminal in the dangerous Victorian city, crime was just as bad or worse in rural areas. Across the country, homicide rates had been steadily declining for centuries, and court records tell us that the majority of crime was petty theft, opportunistic rather than planned, correlated with poverty and economic downturns. As historian David Taylor shows in a study on two counties, thefts from shops, houses and farms made up between 60 and 80% of cases and the majority of stolen goods were food, clothing, money, poultry, potatoes, turnips, cabbage, grain, flour. Despite this, Peel was successful. Maintaining law and order, helping those who require help, and giving advice to those who seek it. Police Constable Edwards is told the area he must patrol. He has shown a photograph and given a description of a girl, aged 16, who is missing from home in another town and is believed to be making her way to this city. And he is also asked to make a note of a building that is being used for a dance that evening. The first modern standardised police force, the Metropolitan Police, was created in 1829 and continued to expand across the century, increasing its numbers from around 20,000 in 1860 to 54,000 in 1911. The preventative police were to be visible, wear uniforms, be of strong physique, intelligence and character, domestic missionaries as historian Robert Storch called them. There was some protest. The Gazette called it a base attempt upon the liberty of the subject and the privilege of local government, said that the purpose of the police state was to drill, discipline and dragoon us all into virtue. Even a parliamentary inquiry concluded that such a system would of necessity be odious and repulsive and one which no government would be able to carry into execution, the very proposal would be rejected with abhorrence. 
it continued that it's difficult to reconcile an effective system of police with that perfect freedom of action and exemption from interference, which are the great privileges and blessings of society in this country. And your committee think that the forfeiture or curtailment of such advantages would be too great a sacrifice for the improvements in police. In 1867, the commentator Walter Bagot wrote that the natural impulse of the English people is to resist authority. The introduction of effectual policemen was not liked. I know people, old people I admit, who to this day consider them an infringement of freedom. If the original policemen had been started with the present helmets, the result might have been dubious. There might have been a cry of military tyranny and the inbred insubordination of the English people might have prevailed over the very modern love of perfect peace and order. Despite all of this, the fist of modernity raised its clenched rational plan and swung. Much of a policeman's time on duty is spent preventing crime by removing temptation from the would-be criminal. The people who work in the city centre have now gone home, so Police Constable Edwards tests the doors of all unguarded buildings and makes sure that they are properly locked up for the night. If he finds a door that is unlocked, he calls the police station to report it so that the owner can be told. Its target was the criminal class, a loose confederation of known thieves and predators that the police started to produce figures for in 1857. Experts and commentators all denied any relationship between things like economic destitution and need as a factor in crime. Instead, crime was the result of idleness, a desire for luxury, moral weakness, a lack of education. Colquhoun wrote that idleness is a never-failing road to criminality. It originates generally in the inattention and the bad example of profligate parents. A report on the Royal Commission on the Rural Constabulary concluded that the prevalent case of vagrancy was the impatience of steady labour. Poverty didn't cause crime, the Royal Commission reported, but laziness, the pursuit of excitement, the temptation of easy profits instead of honesty. Rehabilitation should be guided by Christian principles that conveniently recommended labour as a duty. One commentator argued that it's in the dwelling place of the poor that the zealous must labour for the dissemination of Christian principles and teach men the value of their relative duties as members of society. This is the fountainhead of crime, and it's here that the evil must be grappled with. A 1904 Scotland Yard report concluded that the so-called unemployed have the appearance of habitual loafers rather than unemployed workmen. The poor and distressed appearance of numbers of persons met in the East End is due more to thriftlessness and intemperate habits than to absolute poverty. Poverty is brought about by a want of thrift. This criminal class was made evil by something in their souls that bound them together into a plague of organised gangs stalking the dark alleys of the city. Another journalist, Henry Fielding, wrote of these organised gangs of hundreds using disguises and carrying out planned robberies. The reality looked more like this. 
1910, a 22-year-old found guilty of the theft of a bicycle pleaded, My lord, I have never stolen anything unless driven to do so by hunger. I have not had anything to eat since half past five on Saturday night until given something at the police station Monday morning. My lord, I do not want to thieve. I would sooner work as it's much easier, but a man of my character is not able to get work. For God's sake, give me this chance. Another in the same year, after stealing iron from the roadside, said, Please, sir, we did not know it was wrong, and said there is a bit of food now for our wife. They had not food for three days. Think of them at home, sir. We was out at work for eight weeks before we went out doing this. We are sorry now we took it, sir. To elites, though, the criminal class was a more appealing way to direct society's attention to a scourge that justified heavy-handed policing. The criminal class was ugly, deformed, animalistic even. Reporter Angus Reach went on a tour of the depths of the London criminal underworld with a police inspector and wrote that they were coarse-looking and repulsive, more than one with contused coloured faces. The men were of that class you often remark in low localities, squalid, hulking fellows with no particular mark of any trade or calling on them. He went on, the light from a lamp fell upon his face and I never saw a worse one. Little, deep-sunk eyes and square, bony jaws with a vile expression. The psychiatrist Henry Maudsley argued that teaching self-control to these criminals was as foolish as to preach moderation to the east wind or gentleness to the hurricane. The degeneracy theorists of the time argued that the English people were losing the Darwinian struggle and sinking into depravity. In 1844, Blackwood's magazine wrote that crime had soared by 700% and asked, what is destined to be the ultimate fate of a country in which the progress of wickedness is much more rapid than the increase in the number of people? An article in the Times declared that the criminal classes are more alien from the rest of the community and a hostile army, for they have no idea of joining the ranks of industrious labour, either here or elsewhere. The civilised world is simply the carcass on which they prey, and London, above all, is to them a place to sack. One 1890 book on contemporary science informed that, by some accident of development, by some defect of heredity, or birth, or training, the criminal belongs, as it were, to a lower and older social state than that in which he is actually living. Despite it being argued that society needed protection from murder and theft, court proceedings against degenerates, drunks, street offenders, vagrants and brawlers made up 62% of all cases. But what the rational planners of modern society really wanted was more efficiency, more order and less idleness. The primary and overriding object for which streets exist is passage, a judge ruled in 1913. There is no such thing as a right in the public to hold meetings as such in the streets. Streets are for passage, and passage is paramount to everything else. Meanwhile, at the marketplace, some boxes have fallen off a moving lorry, fortunately without injuring any passers-by, and a crowd has quickly gathered round, thus blocking the traffic. It is one of the policemen's duties to see that roads and pavements are kept clear. A softly spoken, move along there please, from the policeman, is enough to send the people on their way. 
the policeman also has to make sure that the public obey the traffic laws. In this case, the driver, having given his particulars to the policeman, is told that in future he must take greater care in tying down the boxes which he carries on his lorry. Position of the law through the police in the 19th century wasn't about the protection of property and person, but about the regulation of efficient order and the protection from radical change. The meetings of political radicals were kept under surveillance and often infiltrated by police spies. The term move along, move along became yeah, popular. Traditional annual street fairs were shut down. Even people carrying boxes of goods were questioned. The fist of modernity was the outward extension of the muscular power of the capitalist state. The historian J.F. Stephen has written that the administration of criminal justice is the commonest, the most striking, and the most interesting shape in which the sovereign power of the state manifests itself to the great bulk of its subjects. To citizens, the peaceful British Bobby standing on the street corner was still suggestive. While he didn't usually carry a gun, the potential for state violence was well assumed by the public. The Peterloo Massacre in 1819 saw 12 people killed by the guns of the state. Similarly, during a Chartist demonstration in 1848, 170,000 armed special constables were mobilised by the government in London alone. Surveillance and detection were also central. The introduction of the criminal record system in 1869 improved with the use of photography and fingerprinting in 1902. In 1910, the police began to use motorised boats and cars instead of rowing boats and horse-drawn vehicles. Wireless communications were introduced in 1923. The fist was becoming technological, always one step ahead of the criminal class. The telephone operator immediately asks which service the caller needs, fire, police or ambulance. If police aid is needed, the call is switched straight through to the police information room. This room at police headquarters is manned day and night. From here, the duty officer can send wireless messages to the patrol car nearest the scene of the incident. The cars are so placed that it is seldom more than two or three minutes before the police are dealing with the problem on the spot. Apparently, a woman has seen someone moving about near the back of her neighbor's house, and as she knows that the owners are at the local cinema, she has rightly called for the police, realizing that it is her duty to do so. And the fist continues to grow and swing. In 1962, it was estimated that almost one in three men were likely to be convicted of an offence across their lifetimes, and criminal justice is still likely to target an often illusory criminal class. Historian Stephen Box has written that still, our criminal justice system is a selective process in which the powerful are unlikely to be criminalised, whilst the powerless are more likely to end up behind the walls of crumbling, overcrowded Victorian prisons. The historian Douglas Hay has written that it was easy to claim equal justice for murderers of all classes, where a universal moral sanction was more likely to be found, or in political cases, the necessary price of a constitution ruled by law. The trick was to extend that communal sanction to a criminal law that was nine-tenths concerned with upholding a radical division of property.
Hay continues, The law allowed the rulers of England to make the courts a selective instrument of class justice, yet simultaneously to proclaim the law's incorruptible impartiality and absolute indeterminacy. And finally, the historian Vic Gattrall concludes that the history of crime is a grim subject, not because it's about crime, but because it's about power. And so the tour of duty goes on throughout the city. Night and day, in rain, in snow or sunshine, the policemen are out on their beats, friendly and helpful, being firm where firmness is called for, and being kind to those who seek aid. The policeman is a friend of the people, and he knows that they will always turn to him without fear or restraint in their time of need. Move along there, please. If you like these videos, I need your help, and here's my request. If you think you get the same value from four of these videos as you do from just one cup of coffee, then please consider pledging just a dollar per video. That's three to four dollars per month to keep this channel going. You can even limit your pledge to one dollar a month, and if you pledge five dollars, I'll add your name to the credits. To those that already support Then and Now, thank you so much. This channel just wouldn't exist without you. You can also hit like, share, follow me on Twitter and Facebook, etc. All of these things really contribute to helping Then and Now grow. Thanks for watching and see you next week.